Welcome to the podcast of Living Faith Fellowship in Klamath Falls, Oregon. Now you will hear Pastor Rich preach the sermon, Authority Comes from Identity, from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verse 22 to 30, as we continue in the Gospel of Mark sermon series. We pray that God would use this sermon to speak to you directly. And now to Pastor Rich. Good morning, family. How are we? Good. So I'm going to tell you a story. When I was in my early 20s, there was a hamburger restaurant right around the corner from where I worked. And we went to lunch there pretty often. And so one day I'm in there and I'm arguing with the owner of the business. And I don't even remember what the argument was about, but I was right and he was wrong. And so what he told me halfway through this argument was, if you're right, I will give you my restaurant. The very next day, it was proven that I was right. So me and my boss at the time went to lunch there, and as we walked into the place, my boss, being the guy he was, went in, walked in, went behind the bar, and started fixing himself a drink. (laughs) Nick asked my boss, what do you think you're doing? And he said, hey, I heard that you bet Rich yesterday that if he was right, you would give him the restaurant. So this restaurant actually belongs to Rich, and because of my relationship with Rich, I have every right in the world to make myself a drink. (laughs) A person's authority comes from their identity, okay? A person's authority comes from their identity. To make a long story short, he never did give me his restaurant, and I never did own the place. Keep that in the back of your mind as you open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, as we continue in that verse-by-verse study. As you're turning there, let's catch up really quickly. Last week in the Gospel of Mark, we learned how the Pharisees, for the fourth time, demanded a sign or a miracle for Jesus to prove who he was. Then Jesus, the King of Heaven, the Messiah, God come in the flesh, left those religious leaders right on the shore and sailed away. Jesus then warned his disciples to beware of the leaven of unbelief of the Pharisees. As Christ followers, listen, we have to beware of the leaven of unbelief. Unbelief can damage our faith and it even can keep us from coming to faith in the first place. So today we're going to learn two things that are going to reveal Jesus' true identity. So if you have your sermon notes there in your bulletin, Roman numeral one. First, let's talk about a gradual healing. A gradual healing. If your Bibles are open, Mark chapter 8, let's begin at verse 22. Mark 8, 22, then he came to Bethsaida and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. He looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everything clearly. Then he sent him away to his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell anybody in that town. So the miracle of the healing of this blind man, like the miracle that we've seen back in chapter 7, the healing of the deaf man, are only found in the Gospel of Mark. They're not in the other Gospels. It's ironic to me that Jesus in chapter 7 talks about healing a deaf man, and here he talks about healing a blind man, considering what he had just told his disciples. 
as a review, Mark 8, 17. Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? So it's kind of ironic that he healed a deaf man and heals this blind man, and he's asking his own followers, are you deaf? Are you blind spiritually? So these two miracles are also fulfillments of messianic prophecies that Isaiah prophesied over 700 years before Jesus walked the face of the planet. Isaiah 35, 4 says, Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. So there's some similarities here between these two healings and there's some differences too. There in your notes, with both healings, acquaintances brought these men to Jesus. What a great lesson for us. Somebody comes with a need, bring them to Jesus. It doesn't matter if they need something tangible or not. Ultimately, every person's ultimate need is a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. They come with a need. These men bring them to Jesus. Next there in your notes. With both these healings, Jesus took the men away from the crowds. And you have to ask why. Why didn't Jesus just heal them right there? Jesus did many healings right in front of the crowds. Why did he take these men away? Do you know that sometimes God needs to isolate us from the crowds so that we will have ears to hear and eyes to see? Sometimes he needs to draw us away from all the noise and all the daily stuff just so he can speak to us. But the miracle of this blind man, he actually takes the man outside the city. And you've got to ask yourself, why? Why did he take him outside of the city to heal him? That sounds a little crazy to me. Well, remember, Jesus encountered this man at the pool of Bethsaida. Bethsaida was the birthplace of Philip and Peter and Andrew. And actually, in Hebrew, the town's name means house of the fishermen. So it stands to reason these fishermen were born there. Many miracles were done inside this town. Jesus walked on the water near this town. Healing of this blind man happened. The feeding of the 5,000 happened in this town. But Bethsaida was wiped off the map shortly after this miracle, even though they had existed a thousand years before this took place. They were wiped off the face of the map. Matthew says Jesus actually began his earthly ministry near Bethsaida. So they had seen a great light, just like Isaiah prophesied they would. And because of their unbelief, we're told that not many works were able to be performed there. By this time, Jesus has left the area to make his final journey to Jerusalem because they would not believe. What a sad place to be, that you get to the place where you've seen so much, you know the truth so much, and you refused one too many times, and Jesus leaves. Luke 10, 13 says, Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Again, Matthew 13, 58. 
Now he did not do many mighty works there. Why? Because of their unbelief. The Lord is powerful and nothing we or anybody else or anything else in the whole world can thwart the plans of God. However, the Lord's working around us all the time and sometimes we just don't have eyes to see. And because of their unbelief, he would not do certain miracles there. Warren Wiersbe said this, the unique thing about this particular miracle is that it happened gradually and not instantly. Most of the miracles, Jesus spoke a word or did something and it was a complete healing. But here it happens gradually. The gospel shows that Jesus healed at least seven different blind men during his earthly ministry. And he used a variety of different approaches. There in your notes. Perhaps it was the atmosphere of unbelief in Bethsaida that hindered him. Or it may have been the spiritual condition of the man himself. But it's ironic that Jesus spits in his eye. That's kind of different, right? The freedictionary.com says to spit in someone's eye is to spitefully and deliberately insult or show contempt. And yet Jesus spits in his eye to heal him. And as he spits in his eye, we're told that his vision was slightly restored. He says, I see men walking around like trees. I can just see like the outer shapes of these men. So then Jesus goes and he puts his hand on the man's eyes. And then all of a sudden, he sees everybody clearly. Guzik said this, this is the only gradual or progressive healing described in the whole ministry of Jesus. But it's another example of the variety that he used. Jesus never healed anyone twice the same way. He just didn't. That way, no one could repeat a formula. Jesus only behaves this way. Jesus only does things this way. He's not the God of formula. He's the God of miracles. So again, it's ironic that he heals this blind man because of the disciples being so spiritually blind to what he was doing. You know, sometimes Jesus healed publicly, sometimes privately. Sometimes he said a word from a distance. Sometimes he touched people. And here he uses spit. Never just one method. Look again at verse 26. It says, Then he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town, nor tell anyone in the town. There were different times that Jesus had told people, Don't tell anybody what I've done. See to it that no one knows what I've done, because the kingdom time is not yet. And here's the thing. Jesus knew what was in the heart of a man. We learned that last week. And so he knew that whether the crowd was ready to receive this miracle or whether their hearts were ready to believe or any of these things. And he knew the publicity over this miracle. What was it going to cause? It was going to cause more crowds and it was going to cause an uproar and it was going to cause the Romans to get upset and the Pharisees to get upset. And his time had not yet come. Jesus had told the man healed of leprosy to go and tell no one. And yet he went and told everybody. You got to remember, Jesus came with a mission statement, and, and we got to keep this in the back of our mind. Everything that he did had a purpose. He came with a mission statement, and it's really simple. In fact, we ought to put it on the wall right here, our mission statement, to seek and save that which was lost. Why Jesus come? To seek and save that which was lost. Every miracle was out of concern and care for people. 
It, it wasn't somehow to puff him up, make him look like, you know, the big man on campus. No, he knew ultimately every person needed the forgiveness of sin. Every person to go to heaven needs the forgiveness of sin. And so here he is. I came to seek and save that which was lost. There in your notes, Jesus did not want people focusing on the miracles. Rather, Jesus wanted the people to focus on his real mission. He came to die on the cross and provide forgiveness of sin for the people. Before we go on to the next point, put this somewhere, write this down somewhere. Rather than chasing miracles, rather than running after the supernatural, our focus should be the same mission statement Jesus had, to seek and save that which was lost. Now, yeah, does Jesus still do healings? Sure. Does Jesus still do miracles? Sure. According to his will, his purpose, his ways. But don't chase those. Chase the God of the miracle. Get his heart and seek and save those which are lost. All right, so the big question, Roman numeral two, who is Jesus? Look at verse 27. It says, Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. So Jesus arrives in Caesarea Philippi. It's about 25 miles north of Bethsaida, kind of near Mount Hermon. And this is what BiblePlaces.com says about that city. It says, Caesarea Philippi is the location of one of the largest springs feeding the Jordan River. The abundant water supply has made the area very fertile and attractive, catch this, for different religious worship. Numerous temples were built there from the Hellenistic and the Roman periods, and there's even a temple there for Caesar worship. And so Jesus asks the most important question for all time in this city that's known for pagan idolatry and false religions. There in your notes, Many believe this was a purposeful move by Jesus to stop in an area that worshiped false gods and ask the disciples a question that determines someone's eternal destination. See, Jesus wasn't seeking affirmation from his disciples. Jesus knows who he is. He's not like, hey, tell me how wonderful I am. You know, sometimes we ask, how would I do? What we're really asking is, tell me how good I am. That's not what Jesus was doing. What he's doing is he wants the disciples to reflect on all that they've seen, all that they've been through, all they've witnessed. Who do men say that I am? We're going to get into a little bit of apologetics this morning. Even the harshest critics cannot honestly claim that Jesus never existed. Because there's such a tremendous amount of historical documents and evidence that proves that a man from Nazareth named Jesus did exist once upon a time. There's a bunch of evidence, a bunch of documents. Throughout history, the Jewish religious leaders had the most to lose if Jesus was who he said he was. And even they did not deny that Jesus walked the face of the planet. 
The non-Christian Jewish historian Flavius Josephus wrote this about Jesus Christ. He said, at this time there was a man who was called Jesus. His conduct was good and he was known to be virtuous. Many people from the Jews became his disciples and did not abandon his discipleship. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and he died. There in your notes. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was thought to be the Messiah. So here's a non-believing historian from that time saying Jesus existed. Jesus' existence is widely accepted even by world historians. Will Durant notes that no Jew or Gentile from the first century ever denied the existence of Christ. Roman historians, officials, worldly sources all confirm that a Jesus existed. So there's way too much evidence to say Jesus never existed. But here in this narrative, Jesus is no longer concerned with what the religious leaders think, the political leaders. He doesn't care. What he wants to know is, what does the man on the street, what does the common man, what do they say about me? Who do they say that I am? And again, his mission statement, Luke 19.10, the Son of Man had come to seek and save that which was lost. And so notice how the disciples respond. They're put to this question, and it's the most important question in all history. And they said, well, people have differing beliefs about you, Jesus. They've seen the signs and the wonders. They've seen the healing. I mean, a guy gets an ear back. You know, a dead girl comes to life. I mean, they've seen it. And so people have differing opinions. Because of his signs and his miracles and his wonders, many people back then thought Jesus was one of the prophets, like the Old Testament prophets. There in your notes. Some believe that Jesus was John the Baptist, who was beheaded by Herod, who they also believe was back from the dead performing all these signs and wonders. Some believe that Jesus was Elijah fulfilling prophecy. Malachi 4, 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I should come and strike the earth with a curse. Elijah was such a powerful prophet. If you read the stories through 1 Kings, you see he was such a powerful prophet that when they saw these signs and wonders that Jesus did, many people thought, well, here it is. This is Elijah. The promise is fulfilled. Other people thought that Jesus was the weeping prophet Jeremiah. Because if you remember, when Jesus looked over Jerusalem and he was brokenhearted about the unbelief of his people, Jesus wept. And so they thought, well, this must be Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. The crowds, at minimum, thought Jesus was a prophet from God. He seemed to be a good man, and he seemed to love people. You may remember when Nicodemus, back in John chapter 3, came to Jesus. John 3, 2, Nicodemus, a Pharisee himself, said this, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. That was a Pharisee back then, said that to Jesus. So today, the popular opinion is that Jesus was a good teacher. Jesus was a prophet, and Jesus was a good man. And we're going to get more into that in just a minute. 
But again, remember what I said. If you take an honest look at historical documents, there is way too much evidence to say that Jesus never existed. That will not fly, not if you're honest. So Roman numeral three, here's where the rubber meets the road. What say you? Look at verse 29. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ, Christos, the Messiah. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. You see, whether the people recognized it or not, Jesus was so much bigger than a prophet. He, he was so much bigger than a good man. He was so much bigger than John the Baptist, so much bigger than Jeremiah, so much bigger than Elijah. He was so much bigger than a miracle worker or a circus act or a divine healer. He was more than that. There in your notes, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And the question your eternity hinges on is what Jesus asked right here. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say? Jesus looks right at him and says, okay, that's great that all these people believe all that stuff, but who do you say that I am? And today Jesus would look right at us and ask us the same question. Who do you say that he is? This is an important question. This is on the final exam. You might want to take some notes. <laughs> you know, some religions today teach that Jesus was not God incarnate. He was just a prophet. And the Jews rejected the idea that he was even Messiah. Some religions teach that he was a wise, enlightened man. Some teach, yeah, he was the son of God, but he was like a created being like the archangel Michael. Some teach that Jesus is Savior, but he was a spiritual being like man originally was. Some teach that he's a great teacher, a faith healer, the incarnation of God's love. But he doesn't have any deity. You know, most of us have heard the argument by C.S. Lewis that liar, lunatic, or Lord. And I'm going to explain just a little bit about it. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis famously wrote about the foolishness that claiming that Christ is nothing more than a good teacher. He said a good moral teacher would never make the claims that Jesus made because if the claims that he made about being Messiah, God come in the flesh, are not true, then he's neither good nor moral. Because a good man doesn't lie. C.S. Lewis said this, and this is kind of funny. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who thinks he's a poached egg, or he would be a devil of hell itself. And again, here's where the rubber meets the road. There in your notes, C.S. Lewis said, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something even worse. So let's get a couple of points for us out of that statement. Number one, it's not enough to believe what other people believe about him. That's right. It's just not enough. Number two, even history itself judges time by Jesus' death. The term B.C., before Christ, is how we judge things prior to the cross. A.D., for afterwards, is the Latin term in the year of the Lord, is how we label years now. 
By the way, A.D. does not mean after Mohammed. Number three, and this is so serious, all kidding aside, if a person rejects the Lord Jesus Christ, they will spend eternity apart from him. And then finally, for those of us who claim Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, if he's Lord of my life, that means master, boss, Adonai, owner, then it stands to reason that we should submit to him. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? Why? Verse 20 says, For you were bought with a price, a costly price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. They belong to God. And, and look at verse 29 again. And Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. I love Peter, usually foot and mouth with saying the wrong things, but here he doesn't hesitate a bit. Who do I say you are? You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. That's who you are. There in your notes, Christ in Greek is the word Christos, which means anointed. The Holy Messiah, the promised deliverer, God the Son. That's what Peter said. You are Christ. You are the Christ. You're Messiah. And Peter had witnessed Jesus fulfill all the duties of Messiah. Again, they knew all the prophecies. And he's been walking with them for three years. And he's watched them raise dead people, heal the blind, heal the deaf. And Peter says, I've watched you fulfill all the promises of Messiah. You're the one. You are Savior of the world. Jesus promised to set the captives free, and he did it. Peter got to see it. Jesus promised to heal the blind, and he did it, and Peter got to see it. Heal the deaf, and Peter got to see it. And do you know today, Jesus promises freedom for the captives of sin, and he'll do it? And today, Jesus says, I'll give you eyes to see and ears to hear, and he'll do it? John eight thirty six, because if the Son makes you free, you're free, baby. That's the Rich O'Toole version. <laughs> and, and so then Jesus ends this part with telling the disciples, see to it that you tell nobody. Don't tell a soul. Why? That seems counterproductive to grow in a kingdom to me. Jesus, let me go tell. My time has not yet come. Go and tell no one. All right, so let's get practical for a minute. I started with that true story about that restaurant around the corner from my work. He bet me the restaurant. And so my boss walked in that next day and he walked behind the bar, made himself a drink. And he said, hey, you bet Rich the bar. He's the new owner. And he has all authority now because he owns a place. That's the deal. The authority comes from your identity. In our passage today, Jesus asked the disciples, who does the common man think I am? And then, by the way, who do you say that I am? Mark 1.22, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. You see, here's the thing. As Jesus was asking this question, he knew his identity. He wasn't looking for a pat on the back or affirmation from these guys. I know who I am. I know who I am, but do you know who I am?
Paul said in Colossians 1.16, for by him, that's Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus, just before he left to heaven, said these words, Matthew 28, 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. How much? All. And all means all. And that's all all means. And though even though Jesus was given all authority in heaven and in earth, he in turn then gives it to us. And he says, now you go into the world and make disciples. I've been given all authority. Now I'm giving it to you. Go. Think about this. Biblically, the Lord has given parents authority over their children, right? Biblically, the Lord has given governors and politicians authority over their people, their subjects. Leaders of the church have been given authority to be under shepherds over the body. Because of who you are in Christ, and this is where the real crux of the message goes. Because of who you are in Christ, you have been given certain authority because authority comes from a person's identity. And, and since we've been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, we have a new identity. And I want to tell you about the authority that Jesus bestows on you at salvation. We're under the authority of Jesus Christ and have been given authority. And, and so let's talk about a few of them. Number one there in your notes. We have the right to be adopted and become his children. Adopted. And go look up a Roman adoption one of these days. You totally lose everything from your past family and you become an actual child in the family with a full share of the inheritance. You have been given the right to become a child of God. John 1.12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. You got the right. Number two, and this is an awesome one. We can approach the holy throne of God for our needs. My God shall supply for all your needs from his riches and glory. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Boldly come before a holy, perfect God. You used to be enemies, now you can boldly come into the throne room. That's a big deal. Number three, this is awesome too. We have authority to go to heaven to be with Jesus. Jesus said in John 14, 3, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. Here's one that I needed this week, and maybe you need it this week as well. Number four, we have the right to be clothed with armor in order to be victorious during spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6.10, Paul said, Finally, my brethren, breathe strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. If you've been defeated by the devil, that's because you went out in your PJs. 
Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against his schemes. If you need to stand against his schemes, you better not go out in your PJs. It won't work well. Number five, we have authority to rightly interpret God's word. Notice it said rightly. Second Timothy 316, Paul said all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why, Paul? That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Why do we rightly divide the word of truth? That we may be equipped to do good works. And the last one, number six. We now have authority to be ambassadors for Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.20, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Here's the thing. Don't ignore God's call. Don't ignore it to bring others and hear about the gospel. We've been given all these authorities in Christ because of our new identity. Authority comes from identity. If you are not identified in Christ, don't try to break through the throne room of God and come boldly in, in your own righteousness, in your own power. It will not work out well for you. But if you go in the identity of Christ, you are a child of the Most High God and you have every right in the world to be there. Jesus is the Messiah, the only way to heaven. And someday, every one of us will give an account for that question. But who did you say I was? Well, you were a good teacher. You had some great sayings. That's not going to make it. Here's the key to the whole thing. When you get up in the morning, get dressed in the full armor of God and walk in your authority. Don't walk in the ways of the world. Don't try to behave like the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind and walk out in the authority in which God has freely given you. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and now I'm telling you to go. I mean, it's just like Jesus said, it's all mine. It all belongs to me, every bit of it. And you're a co-heir with Christ, so now go. But go, dress correctly, and go. And do what God's called you to do because you have a new identity. Stop acting like that old person. That person doesn't live here anymore. Stop behaving like that. And go out in the power of Christ and walk in your new identity. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. And like every week, we'll be in the back. We would love to pray with you, for you, through something. You know, one of the unopened gifts we have from God that we do not take enough advantage of is God said he will hear. God will answer. And I'm not saying you're going to get whatever you ask for because that's not the true gospel. The true gospel is God's going to give you what you need. But God, who's rich in mercy, loves you. And if you need prayer, don't hold back. Just come on back. There's a lot of us who'd love to pray for you, love to encourage you. Mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. But this week, I want you to practice putting on the forearm of God and walking in your new identity because you have a lot of authority and we're just leaving it at home when we go out to work. Let's pray. 
Thank you for listening to Pastor Rich preach the sermon, Authority Comes from Identity, from Mark chapter 8, verse 22 to 30. Tune in next week as Pastor Rich continues the Gospel of Mark sermon series. You can also be part of our Sunday service in person or online every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time. Watch our live stream on our website, YouTube, or Facebook page. Our website is livingfaithklamath.com. That is livingfaithklamath.com. To find our Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram profile, simply search for Living Faith Fellowship Klamath. That is Living Faith Fellowship Klamath. You can also find these links in the description of this week's episode. If you want to show your appreciation, you can tell others about us. Subscribe to our podcast, and you can also leave a review so more people can hear the Word of God. Thank you again, and God bless you.